This is the CQ on Congress Coronavirus Special Report. We are bringing you daily updates on the policy news you need to know using the reporting prowess of CQ Roll Call. I'm Sean Zeller. It's Wednesday, April 29th. There is hope today. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top expert on infectious diseases, said clinical trials of the drug remdesivir showed clear-cut, significant positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery for patients with COVID-19. The Food and Drug Administration will authorize the drug's emergency use, while the stock of drugmaker Gilead Sciences surged more than 6% on the news and is now up 27% on the year. Meanwhile, Congress is at loggerheads over what to do next. With local governments furloughing and laying off police officers, firefighters, teachers, emergency medical technicians, and sanitation workers, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wants any aid for them contingent on Democrats accepting liability protections for reopening businesses. We begin tonight with Delaware Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat. We asked him about the Senate returning to D.C., and how to handle the grim forecast about global famine. Well, thank you for coming on our show, Senator Coons. We appreciate it. We, we asked you today to come on to talk about hunger, but first I wanted to ask you about uh, the Senate's plan to reconvene on Monday. They're expecting you to come back to Washington. How do you feel about that? Uh, Sean, I don't think that we should be returning to Washington without a a compelling pressing agenda uh, that requires our action uh, and a clear plan for how to provide for the safety uh, of those who work in the Capitol and in the Senate buildings uh, in order to make it possible for us to return. Uh, I'll remind you and uh, our listeners that out of the 100 senators, there's a majority that are in their 60s or older uh, and thus fit the profile of being uh, vulnerable uh, to COVID-19. Uh, but also when we return, uh, there are hundreds of people who have to come into work, uh, whether they're Capitol Police or they uh, work in uh, facilities maintenance and service and support or food service. Uh, and we don't have a detailed plan that I'm aware of, at least, uh, to provide them all with personal protective equipment to provide for um, hand sanitizer and social distancing. So uh, I frankly think we are not just violating the District of Columbia uh, shelter-in-place uh, rules and those those rules and restrictions in many of our home states, uh, but we're also asking those who work in the Senate to take unnecessary risks when the only agenda item we know of right now for this coming week is the confirmation of justices, excuse me, is the confirmation of judicial nominees. Now, the House is planning to consider a proposal to allow some sort of remote voting the Senate doesn't seem to have broached that topic. Are you hearing anything about that? Would you support a remote voting plan? There's been some vigorous discussion. Uh, I think Senator Durbin uh, was trying to work out with Senator Blunt a proposal, uh, and certainly uh, Senator Blunt as chairman of rules and ranking member Klobuchar, uh, I think have had some discussions, but I don't think uh, because of the opposition of Majority Leader McConnell that it's proceeded very far. Uh, certainly my impression is that we don't yet have a plan in place uh, for emergency remote voting, although we should because it's foreseeable uh, whether now or during a re-emergence of this pandemic in the fall um, that we will have real challenges. 
if we return this coming week and several senators or their senior staff or the folks who work with and for us in the Capitol can track COVID-19 as a result of our returning, uh, what will we do then? On the question of Congress reconvening, uh, some lawmakers have argued that essential workers are going to work, even in places where they have stay-at-home orders, such as grocery clerks, Amazon delivery people, train uh, drivers, and they are saying that Congress should also be considered an essential workforce. What, what to that argument? The question here really is, does that require us to all travel to Washington and to reconvene? If we do that, we should be conducting oversight of how the Trump administration has been dispersing the record amount of funds, the literally trillions of dollars in funds uh, that were appropriated through the CARES Act and the three other bills that we've done. Instead of having an agenda that includes oversight, right now our agenda just includes confirmation uh, of judicial nominees. And and I frankly don't think that that is an urgent, essential function of Congress um, that requires 100 members and their staff uh, to reconvene in the Senate body. Okay, on to hunger. You are on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You have been an advocate of foreign aid, a strong advocate. Uh, At this time, the United Nations says that 265 million people across the world are in danger of starvation because of COVID-19 and the associated lockdowns. The United States would normally come to the rescue in a situation of famine. Will we be able to this time? Uh, We are certainly able to. The question is whether we are willing to. Um, Having done a number of town halls, uh, both tele-town halls and uh, video conferences with folks up and down my state, Uh, I understand how Delawareans and most Americans are very focused on their own families, their own businesses, their own schools, and their own neighborhoods. Um, But I I do think part of what distinguishes us as a nation is our long history of providing critically needed assistance uh, to people around the world. Um, So I think we should do this again. I plan to fight for this uh, in our appropriations process on the state and foreign operations uh, subcommittee, and I've already submitted Um, this year's appropriations requests that would significantly increase uh, our hunger relief investments around the world. The developed world is having trouble coping with this virus, obviously. It raises the question, is the developing world going to be able to cope with it? Uh, It it is going to be a disaster. Uh, I've recently done a number of calls with uh, faith leaders, with national leaders, with uh, private sector leaders, Uh, who I know from across Africa and from around the developing world, uh, as well as calls with a number of the leaders of um, some of our most prominent nonprofits. Uh, And uh, already the signals are are gravely concerning uh, from Central and South America, from Africa, from Southeast Asia. Um, These are countries with fragile health systems uh, that have very little in the way of additional resources to confront a new pandemic. Uh, And I, I am hopeful that the world will respond in an appropriate and timely way. Um, I am encouraged uh, that President Trump has recently done uh, phone calls with the presidents of, I believe, Nigeria and Ethiopia uh, and committed himself to uh, sending them uh, ventilators and PPE and other relief. Uh, But frankly, we're going to need to do a whole lot more than a few phone calls uh, and a few pledges of support. We actually seem to have a surplus of some food in the United States. Farmers are dumping milk. Uh, they're slaughtering piglets because they can't get them to market. The restaurants aren't buying food. Cafeterias aren't buying food. Can we get that food to the people who need it? 
Uh, we can, and that is a way that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has historically uh, dealt with crop surpluses in the United States. Uh, we have the most productive uh, farmers and uh, agricultural uh, community in the world. Uh, on a per farmer and per acre basis, uh, we grow more than any other country. Um, and for decades, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, has purchased surplus commodities as a way of uh, putting a floor underneath commodity prices when there are bumper crops and then redistributed that food to the hungry here within the United States and around the world. It's not always the most efficient way to deliver uh, food assistance during a famine or a crisis, but when you've got uh, a commodity surplus as we do now in the United States across so many different sectors, uh, from dairy to row crops and grains to uh, different meats to beef and poultry and pork, uh, I think it would be a, a great idea for us to invest in purchasing more and then providing it both through food banks here in the United States uh, to our own hungry um, fellow Americans and to have it available as a resource for the developing world because I think we're going to see a record famine uh, this year and next year in the developing world as well. President Trump has issued an executive order to keep the meat plants in the United States open. With regard to the question of our supply chain issues, which could cause hunger here, what do you think about that order and about our supply chain issues and hunger in the United States? Uh, Sean, I think our supply chain issues um, and the question we were just talking about, the delivery of surplus commodities to the developing world, these are essentially logistics problems. Uh, a lot of why you've seen um, slaughtered uh, uh, pigs and uh, uh, calves is because of a logistics challenge in terms of uh, being able to move a surplus um, farm product like milk, um, uh, cheese, um, butter, um, row crops, uh, and uh, tragically um, uh, poultry and uh, beef and uh, pork um, to the processing plants and then to uh, the cities or the communities where people might consume them. Um, so it, it's great that the president is engaged in this way, but, but frankly, what's much more important is testing and PPE and safe practices for the workers. Uh, in a lot of the processing plants, a significant number of workers uh, are not coming for their shifts because they're afraid uh, of getting infected with COVID-19 and then spreading that uh, with family members. Um, so we need to protect the workers uh, who help keep these plants open. We need to invest in making sure that the workplace safety, workplace practices are explained to them and accessible to them. Uh, many are not native English speakers uh, here in the state of Delaware. We have a lot of folks who are Haitian and speak Creole uh, or who are Central American and speak Spanish. Uh, and I've been urging the, the plant leaders to communicate and engage in a way that both uh, as they have been, uh, that promotes the health and safety of individual plant workers, uh, but also make sure that their communities and their families uh, are informed and aware about it. Um, I think a coordinated uh, federal and state and industry response here uh, could show a great example of how best to handle uh, a, a challenge of this type. Uh, and bluntly so far, it's been disappointing, uh, the lack of real coordination between uh, the federal stockpiles and resources and the states and cities and communities that have needed timely access to those resources. Uh, so I'm hopeful we can get it right uh, on this particular issue. What about the president's executive order? It's come into some criticism because some have said that it's more about keeping the food flowing, keeping profits for the meat packers and not protecting the workers. Well, that's why uh, my comments began with emphasizing the importance of keeping workers safe. 
we have uh, a number of plants around the country where a significant number of workers are refusing to come to work because they're not convinced it's safe. Uh, and I think that's where this response has to begin, uh, is by um, not just trying to persuade them uh, that it's safe, but showing uh, that there is a commitment to uh, providing the personal protective equipment, uh, the safe places uh, for those who are infected or become infected uh, to be quarantined or have access to health care. You know, a lot of these processing plants are in fairly rural areas with hospitals uh, that need additional resources, uh, that need um, ventilators and need uh, access to uh, testing uh, equipment and material and need um, the, the funding to be viable. So uh, it is not unreasonable for workers to be concerned about their safety. And I think uh, the first step in making sure that processing plants uh, are able to stay open is making it uh, clear that there is a sustained commitment to the health and safety of workers um, from the President of the United States, uh, from the Department of Agriculture, uh, from OSHA, uh, as well as from state leaders. Here in my state of Delaware, uh, I'm confident that uh, Governor Carney is striking the right balance on this. Uh, but there's lots of states at issue here, and there's lots of different industries involved. Last question for you, Senator. What about oversight? Congress has just appropriated almost $3 trillion to deal with the virus and its economic ramifications. How can Congress oversee that money, oversee the executive branch, when it's not able to get back to the Capitol? Well, we should be working out um, the rules of the road for us to do remote hearings. Um, that's different from a markup at which legislation or nominations are advanced, uh, but we should be doing remote hearings. It is entirely possible to safely have uh, witnesses appear, provide testimony and documents, have members question, uh, and publicize the results. Uh, so I do think we should be doing uh, oversight, and I frankly think the odds that in many of our states uh, we're going to be living under shelter-in-place orders for weeks or months uh, is fairly high. I'll remind you that both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redland uh, have predicted um, a second round of this pandemic uh, in the fall that'll be coincident with uh, flu and cold season. Uh, if it follows anything like the pattern of the 1918 pandemic influenza, uh, the second round in the fall and winter could be even more lethal than the first. So uh, I do think we should be planning ahead. Part of what's happened over the last six weeks is uh, the chaos of trying to catch up uh, with having not planned and not prepared enough uh, in January and February as this pandemic was spreading across the United States. Uh, we should be doing the things that are essential to looking forward, providing the resources for vote by mail, uh, providing the investment and in resources for national service so that hundreds of thousands of young people can help with contact tracing and testing and God willing, uh, later vaccination and making sure that the Senate and the House can conduct oversight in a meaningful way. That's how we'll make sure that federal agencies from the IRS, which is distributing stimulus checks uh, to the better, excuse me, to the Small Business Administration uh, and how they're distributing PPP funds. Uh, we have to be doing oversight uh, and we don't, we don't have to do that uh, in person in the Capitol. A stark warning. Thank you, Senator Coons, for joining us today. Thank you, Sean. Now we take a deeper dive into President Trump's executive order to keep meatpacking plants operating. CQ Roll Call senior reporter Ellen Ferguson has been digging into what it actually means. Today I've been trying to figure out exactly what an executive order that President Trump signed on Tuesday will actually mean for the nation's meatpacking 
and poultry packing and processing plants. Supporters of the executive order say that this will provide them certainty that it should protect the plants from being forced to close because of COVID-19 related um, cases among their employees or, or local and state agencies perhaps employing and using um, mandatory standards as opposed to some of the guidelines that have recently been issued by the Centers for Disease Control and by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And so far, as far as I can tell from talking to people, there's confusion and there's no clear answer. This may have to be something that will be cleared up by going to the courts if indeed state and local health agencies decide to push the issue. Now, someone I talked to said perhaps this executive order will serve as sort of a warning to state and local health officials that if you indeed decide to pursue trying to quarantine or to shut down a plant, that there's probably going to be pushback from the plant and they will be using the executive order and it will be a long and drawn out process. But on the other hand, uh, there is also a movement to say that there's concern about the workers at these plants, where a number of the plants have become sort of so-called hotspots for COVID-19 cases, where workers are either testing positive for the virus, or they have actually gotten sick, been hospitalized, or there have also been some, some cases of death. And that there is concern that by making these plants a part of the critical infrastructure of the economy, as the executive order declares them, and by putting them under the Defense Production Act, that the emphasis will be on keeping the plants open and rolling and not so much on actually protecting the workers. Now, there is still this question, Mark, about what exactly does it mean when you say that a plant should not be closed down, cannot be closed down during a public health pandemic. And finally, a report from Michael McIgnoni on the virus, rural America, and healthcare there. I've been reporting on some of the vulnerability that rural areas have to the coronavirus. Now, the coronavirus has not hit rural areas by and large yet. But with the increasing likelihood that the country is going to open up again in the next few weeks, the possibility remains. And if the virus does start hitting rural areas, there's the possibility that it's going to be worse than it was when it was hitting cities like New York. Now, there are several reasons for this. The first being that there are a high number of people who are potentially more vulnerable to the virus than the average population. Rural areas tend to be older, and some counties have a median age of over 50, according to census data. Rural areas also tend to have higher rates of obesity, diabetes, and other chronic health conditions that are considered as risk factors and comorbidities for the coronavirus. And that's according to the Centers for Disease Control. And economically depressed areas can have a high number of people who are living in homes with a occupancy of greater than one person per room. This means larger families or multiple families or multiple generations of a single family living in one household. In addition to that, some of the epidemiologists who I've talked to said that there's an additional risk factor from rural agricultural jobs that involve working in close conditions like meat packing plants or some farm work that present a risk for transmitting the virus. 
In addition to that, large populations in rural areas tend to be institutional settings like long-term care facilities and prisons. Now, the public health and public policy experts who I've spoken to, particularly Don Taylor at Duke University, have said that nursing homes and other long-term care facilities are a special risk because generally the people who are in those facilities have the same kind of chronic conditions that put them at risk for the coronavirus. Now, on the flip side of this, the healthcare in rural areas might not be ready for the coronavirus to hit in the same way that it has in urban areas. They are generally sparse and they might not have facilities at the same level that there are in major metro areas. There was a study released by the Kaiser Family Foundation last week that found that on a per person basis, many rural areas have half the number of ICU beds that are available in urban areas. That means that for every person who gets sick and needs an ICU bed, when it gets to a rural area, there will be half as many possible beds for those people to use. On top of that, rural hospitals have already been financially stressed by the shutdown and elective procedures and they may not be able to keep their doors open if they aren't getting an infusion of funds. Last tonight, Representative Justin Amash, the conservative gadfly from Michigan who left the Republican Party last summer and then voted to impeach President Trump, has decided to run for the libertarian nod for president. It means the GOP will likely retain his third congressional district seat around Grand Rapids. That's our CQ on Congress coronavirus special report for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest. For all of us in the CQ Roll Call newsroom, I'm Sean Zeller.